0: has been looking at the topic of hope from varying perspectives uh, and then how that hope culminates in the arrival of Jesus. Uh, And some questions have been stirring in my mind because hope a lot of times as a topic is something that we live with but don't name as often. We often just kind of have hope around ideas or, or things but don't get to actually look at how it changes us or how it changes how we behave. So I wanted to, this morning, as we're transitioning from 2018 to 2019, We're making New Year's resolutions and, and thinking about how we want to structure our lives for the next year to consider how hope actually has an effect on us as Christians and what is unique about this Christian hope specifically. Because if Christianity is true and real, it ought to affect everything we do. And if that's the case, then the Christian hope ought to affect the way that we go out into the world. Uh, So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, so if you want to open your Bible or device, I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in. Dear God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for, as Luke said, this place where we can safely gather to seek you. I thank you for the hope that we have in your son, Jesus, who has arrived uh, and has changed the world forever. Uh, I thank you that we get to experience him and know him and uh, see him as the picture of your character and your goodness. I pray that uh, your spirit moves through this scripture, moves through whatever is said to each individual heart in here so that they can leave this room and go into their specific contexts with this newfound understanding of what hope does for them in their lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. 1 Peter 1, we're going to be in verses 3 through 7, so I'll read it out loud if you want to follow along. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed." Um, I want to make sure we locate ourselves in Scripture here real quick. So this, is, this passage is coming from a letter written by the Apostle Peter. He was one of the original 12 apostles that Jesus selected. And Peter uh, knew Jesus really well. Uh, we get a ton of stories from Scripture uh, where Jesus and Peter have, have powerful interactions. Peter, uh, like, gloriously affirms Christ as the Messiah and then denies him. He walks on water and then he sinks He uh, sees all these miracles that Jesus performed in his ministry. And Jesus told Peter that he'd be the rock upon which the church would be built. So Peter was intimately connected to Jesus. And when he writes to the Christian church this letter, his name, his words have power because he was so connected to Christ. And so that's where we are as as we read this. This is a letter written by Peter to Christians. And he immediately, uh, hearkening back to the connection uh, of him to Christ, He uses a phrase and an idea that Jesus actually used. You might have noticed it there. Uh, He says, new birth, or maybe in your version it says, born again. Uh, And while the verbiage, the the language is a little bit different, the idea behind it is the same. Uh, Back in John 3, we as a church have been going through the book of John. In John chapter 3, Jesus meets a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Hebrew teacher who knew the scriptures really well. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, uh, that in order to see the kingdom of heaven, to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must have new birth. And Nicodemus was confused by that. He was trying to figure out, like, how does that work physically? And he actually asked the question to Jesus, do you have to re-enter into your mother's womb? Like it's, and when you think about it, it's kind of a silly question to ask someone. Uh, but Nicodemus wasn't understanding the spiritual significance of what being born again meant. Um, so if you want to get a more fully orbed picture of that passage Uh, You can go listen to uh, Luke's sermon. You can ask him for it, or it might be available online. But kind of the the essence of the born-again language, this idea of the spiritual sense of being born again, it essentially means an entirely new beginning, a fresh start. So whatever defined you previously, whatever actions or misactions, deeds or misdeeds, defined your identity and made up your life, those have been tossed away, and you now are born again into a life with Christ once you trust in his resurrection. So that's, that's the idea of this born again. We're beginning afresh. We're, we have new birth. And then Peter tells us after borrowing that phrase that we've been born again or have new birth into a living hope. Now, if that being born again is entirely new, that means this living hope must be entirely new, right? If this new life that we have in Christ is entirely new and everything changes from it, that means this living hope must be different than anything else that we can experience as humans so there's three questions I want to kind of guide us through the rest of this passage about this concept of living hope. The first question is, what is it? How do we define living hope in this passage? Second thing, how does it differ from hope that preceded it in, in our, uh, before being born again? And then third, how does this living hope change me specifically? How does it change my outlook, my behavior, my worldview, how I interact with others? And thankfully, Peter gets at all three of these questions in this passage. So the first, what is living hope? Immediately in the verse where he references living hope, uh, in verse 3, he tells us that it's been prompted through the resurrection of Jesus. So that means that the salvific work of Christ, the salvation that we receive through the death and resurrection of Christ is the foundation for this living hope. Jesus' redeeming of us and making us co-heirs with him as children Of God. That's the foundation for living hope. And then he actually gets to a couple other characteristics. He tells us that this living hope is based in an inheritance that we've received that will never perish, spoil, or fade, and is kept in heaven. And I realized at this point in reading the passage the first time around that there's a bunch of Christianese in this passage. And a lot of you may know what I mean. If you don't know what I mean when I say that, Christianese is sort of this umbrella term. Christians often give to language or phrasing or verbiage that we use all the time, but oftentimes it can just kind of bounce off of us. It can go in one ear and out the other. So things like born again and living hope and inheritance, perish, spoil, fade, kept in heaven, they all kind of fit into that Christian buzzword sort of sense. And I realized in reading it that when we take a step back to actually look at those words again, it gives us tremendous insight to what Peter's doing. Because when he tells us that this living hope, is based in an inheritance, that inheritance means we've been made children of God, we inherit the same things as Christ, we become viewed in the same way as Christ by God, and that it will never perish, spoil, or fade, and that it's kept in heaven. He's making a radical, radical claim that's different than anything else that we could experience. And I think that starts with understanding what hope is. So think about it this way, hope as a concept, things that we hope in and the concept of hope, Hope can only last as long as the things hoped for, right? Hope can only last as long as the things hoped for. So quick example, I'm a Green Bay Packer fan. Love the Packers. And they've been a great team for a long time, nine, ten years. They've been a playoff contender, Super Bowl contender, super fun to watch. And so I have always had hope in them to go win a Super Bowl every year. It's been a a great run these last few years that they've had. But this year has been a bit different. Uh, My hope was sky high for them, and it just like slowly declined as the season went, went along, and they ended up losing to the Cardinals, who were one of the worst teams in football, <laughs> at home. We fired our coach. People have been traded. It's just been an ugly... Aaron Rodgers, our quarterback, just has this sad-looking beard all the time now. It's just been a rough year. Um, and, and, and my hope in the Green Bay Packers' Super Bowl chances has dwindled as their Super Bowl chances have, Right. And now that they won't be making the playoffs, they have no chance to contend for a Super Bowl, and my hope in them winning the Super Bowl is gone, right? The circumstance carried my hope with it. And as soon as that circumstance went away, my hope went with it as well. And while that's kind of a small, silly example, isn't that kind of the truth of the whole human story outside of Jesus? Us choosing to place our hope in things that will inevitably fade, and then having to constantly adjust those hopes out of the misery of previously failed ones? If you don't believe me, try your list on for size. Friends, family, spouses, pets, places, houses, all your looks and all your books, your nation, your political party, your system that you build up, your wealth and your health, if you ever had them to begin with. Much of our life consists of circumstances that we place hope in and that go away. And we have to re where our hope goes. For Rose, Mapendo and the Moise family, it all kind of disappeared at once. So they had to adjust and say, where is my hope? For a lot of us, if we're lucky, those things are spread out. But circumstances all go away. And the reason they go away, the reason our hope goes away with them, is because no circumstance can last. They all eventually fade. That's what makes Peter's claim in a living hope in Christ so radical. Because he tells us that it persists with Christ and transcends all circumstance. Because Christ conquered the one circumstance that conquers everything, death. And so in that sense, when he claims that we have a living hope, he's making a claim that death, not even death, can destruct or or empty our hope. That The thing that empties all other hopes in existence can't empty ours. That's a powerful, radical claim that he's making. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, the only imperishable hope is that which climbs above the stars and fixes itself upon the throne of God and the person of Christ. So this living hope, it's imperishable. It's based in an inheritance that we have as Christians, uh, that we've been made children of God. And then Peter also tells us that it's kept in heaven for us in verse 5, and that it's ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, that reality that it's eternally secured and kept in heaven for us and that we'll eventually experience the full culmination of this hope in Christ oftentimes can make Christians sort of hunker down, right? Like I'm sure many of us know Christians who have a hope in heaven, right? They're looking forward to heaven and so they're saying, you know what? I've stamped my ticket to heaven. I'm on the nice list. I'm good to go. I'll be there eventually so I can just kind of be away from the world and just kind of cruise through. Maybe I build a bunker and live underground, eat food out of cans, whatever it is. Christians just kind of pull away when they hear this, right? They've stamped their ticket and that's all they need. But the narrative of Scripture goes entirely the other direction. The Psalms, the prophets, the Apostle Paul, Jesus himself in the Lord's Prayer that we just read, Jesus tells us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? We're supposed to bring this living hope. Something about this living hope that we have is supposed to exist in the here and now. It's not something that we wait to happen until we get to heaven. And so that brings us to the second and third questions. How does this hope differ, and how does it change us as believers? And in order to explore those questions, I'm going to return to the Moise family. The night they had broken in seemed like ages ago now. They had been at the death camp for nearly a year, and life had persisted with a sense of perpetual kidnapping, a constant stealing away of the circumstances that had so often provided hope for the Moises. Rose's husband had been killed swiftly, alongside most other fathers, so as to avoid any male presence at the camp that could arise in opposition. At the beginning, only a cup of rice a day was allotted for each family, but that was reduced quickly as well. Given the imminence of death, it seemed counterintuitive to continue to feed the families. Her sons, in order to provide food for the family, had to steal from nearby mango trees or from the peanut plants of the soldiers, always at great risk. Yet amidst all of these challenges, perhaps the greatest still awaited Rose herself, giving birth to twins. She had discovered shortly after arrival that she, their arrival that she was pregnant, and it was now time to deliver. So in the dead of night... Malnourished and exhausted, she brought two new sons into the world. She took a piece of sharpened wood to cut the umbilical cords, and she tied them with a hair tie that she had kept since their arrival. And she chose to name these two sons after the commanding officers at the camp. For Rose and her family, at this point, all circumstantial hope has disappeared. I mean, look at this situation in a vacuum. Death camp, malnourished and exhausted, two boys born to a family that's already too big for the food that they can get. Circumstances provide no hope in this scenario. And yet we find that Rose, in spite of those circumstances, chooses to seek life by bringing two boys into the world. And then chooses to seek forgiveness and redemption by naming those boys after her oppressors. That type of response can't come from circumstantial hope because the circumstances are gone, right? It can't. It literally can't. Her hope is instead in a Christ that she knows has redeemed her and is going to bring ultimate goodness to existence eventually. It's rooted in her experience of the cross, of her redemption, of her elevation to an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And that knowledge changes how she perceives and responds to her circumstances. It empowers her to bring new life into a literal death camp. And there's a paradox at the heart of this. You might already see it, and this is the second thing. This is how our hope differs. Peter gets to it here in verse 6. He tells us that we greatly rejoice over these realities, this living hope, this inheritance that we have, although now for a little while, we may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In the Greek, in this language, greatly rejoice. And now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer. They're both present tense. He's telling us that our rejoicing and our suffering happen at once, simultaneously. How does that work? Right? Because it doesn't feel that way a lot of the time. Well, let's, again, take a step back and evaluate our terms. Let's consider what sorrow or suffering is for a minute. Sorrow or suffering is just simply the removal of circumstances that we have hope in, right? Anytime that a circumstance is taken away from me, I suffer. I experience sorrow. So maybe it's being fired from a job. Maybe it's a pet passing away when your significant other hurts or deserts you, when you're injured, when you have your tonsils taken out. Not speaking from personal experience, just a random example. Um, that's what sorrow is, right? I experience sorrow and suffering every time a circumstance that I've had hope in is taken away. And in my previous life, before being born again, if my hope is in the circumstance, I become hopeless when it goes away, right? If, if the circumstance is the ship that carries the cargo of my hope, that ship goes down, my hope goes with it, and I'm either, well, my response becomes different. And there's a few different ways I think we typically respond as humans. We can become angry, Saying, I don't deserve this suffering. I didn't do anything to deserve this because we don't know what to do when our hope has been misplaced. Or we become angry and, and bitter. We say, we blame someone for our suffering. We go to a place where we say, you know what? This breakup that happened, I'm just not going to talk to women or men anymore. I'm just going to be done with relationships. I'm just going to be done with this side of existence. And ultimately, we can end up trying to place our hope in other things. We can go to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and those circumstances all get taken away as well. It's the origin of the grumpy old man. Through all his life, circumstantial hope has disappeared, and it leaves him cynical, jaded, in a rocking chair, mumbling to himself under his breath. That's what our previous life would give us. Circumstances go away, and our hope goes with them. But the difference, right, that's the second question. What's the difference with this new and living hope? And Peter tells us that this new and living hope, after being born again, since it resides in an experience of Christ's death and resurrection that goes above all circumstances, that gives me an anticipation for what Christ is bringing eventually. So Luke talked about this a couple weeks ago. There's something that happens at the cross when we trust in Jesus, when we trust in his resurrection. Something transforms in us. It's that inheritance that Peter's getting at. And then we also know that Jesus' second coming will bring full redemption to the entirety of existence, and we live in this middle ground. And so our disappointment in our living hope does not come from the fact that our hope disappears because our hope transcends the circumstance. Our disappointment in our current existence with living hope basically comes from our understanding that the eternal reality hasn't quite arrived yet. Does that make sense? The idea that Peter's getting at here is that our our, uh, ability to greatly rejoice and suffer at the same time comes from our knowledge that eternal hope is coming and that right now it doesn't get realized in this moment fully yet. We're in this waiting period and it allows me to shift my sorrow. No longer when a circumstance goes away does my hope go away with it. My hope remains in awaiting the arrival of Christ and I can suffer just understanding the circumstance as a circumstance. It allows me to name the situation that I'm going through rather than uh, see it as the entirety of my existence. right? And actually what we found out from psychology and counseling in recent decades is that the most healthy thing to do with your pain is to name it and see it for what it is, a circumstance that's difficult, that enables you to pull away your identity from the pain that you're experiencing completely and deal with it better. That's what living hope does for us. So it allows us to shift our sorrow, and then it provides us a recourse to respond. Remember before, my hope is gone, circumstance is gone, I really have nowhere to go. I'm kind of just out waiting, treading water. But with this new living hope, I have a template for response. I can say it's terrible that this thing is gone. I can suffer and see it for what it is, but since I know of an eternal hope that redeems, I can look to bring it into the present moment now. It doesn't eliminate my suffering. My suffering doesn't go away, but I'm able to respond to my suffering more adequately. It moves me to action. It makes me say, I have this eternal hope that exists with Christ. I've experienced it right now in his redeeming of me. I want to bring it into everything that I do, I want to bring it into every context that I live in. That's why we can look at a refugee crisis, mourn it emphatically, and then employ God's invocation to Israel to love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. It's why we can see the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the imprisoned, and we can have deep sorrow for them, and then we can feed them, and give them drink, and clothe them and visit them. Our living hope is what empowers us to do that because we know of the eternal beauty that God is bringing and we can look to bring it into our existence right now. It's why we can experience a kidnapping, reside in a death camp, and we can choose to seek God's redeeming work in forgiveness, naming children after our oppressors. When I know of something good, think about it in your life. When you you experience something good, a restaurant, a new drink, a movie, music. You just want to bring everyone into it. Try this, taste this, watch this, listen to this. When you've had that experience internally, it makes you want to bring everyone around. And how much more, if that experience is eternally significant, should we want to bring it to everything we do? It's not just a drink that we consume for two minutes. It's a drink that overflows for the rest of eternity. And that's why Peter, in verse 7, uses the metaphor that he does. He tells us that in that passage, gold becomes refined by fire. And that our living hope actually transcends even that reality. So, to break down that metaphor real quick, gold, as a a metal, as a thing, as a substance, uh, becomes increasingly purer the more you heat it up. All of gold's impurities get weeded out the more that you heat it up. The fire around the gold elevates it and makes it more pure. Peter's telling us that our living hope, when circumstances heat up around us, rises with the circumstance. It becomes increasingly pure and more evident to everyone around us. That means that the greater the circumstance, the more difficult the thing that we're going through, the greater the beauty that we can bring into existence from it. how much more powerful is that living hope than anything else we could experience? When we can experience every circumstance and situation in this world and respond with living hope every time that can seek to bring beauty and goodness to all of it, that's life-changing. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, put it this way. He said, (laughs) I have the quote up there, there it is, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things that a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we're to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Man. C.S. Lewis got it, man. Every time I read his quotes. So the third question, how does it change us, Right? Well, C.S. Lewis kind of said it. Our eternal living hope enables us to see and experience the ultimate kingdom of heaven right now and then respond by seeking its movement in our lives amidst difficult circumstances. Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian, calls it a passion for what is possible. Since I know what's possible in Christ, since I've experienced it in my heart and I've seen the impact it has, I just want to bring it into everything, and that's my response to every circumstantial hope that's taken away. So we work to live a life of love that brings his redeeming work to every present moment. It's a lot of words I've thrown at you at this point, and there's a visual that I actually had pulled up here. Uh, Kayla, if you could pull that second one up as well. What words, you guys can say it out loud, what, what do you see in that? That's true. Yeah, that's true. Snow isn't there. That's part of it. The whole thing. What's the whole thing say? God is nowhere and God is now here. See, what this living hope enables us to do is see situations in which it appears that God is nowhere. If I just look at the situation, many of us, when we looked at that, Uh, wording, first thing we saw is God is nowhere, right? When we see circumstances in which it appears that God is nowhere, we in our living hope can look to name the places where God is now here. We can look to bring love and goodness and beauty to everything that we do. Eventually, orders came down to the commanders of the camp. The prisoners were to be eliminated. In spite of such orders, though, the commanders chose to transfer the Moise family to a different prison nearby rather than kill them. See, the commanders couldn't stomach the killing of their namesakes. Following a further override at the new camp, they were transferred again to a human rights center. Getting connected to the Red Cross there, Rose Mapendo and the Moise family received refugee status, allowing for their move to Phoenix, Arizona. Rose has worked since then as an advocate for human rights and for refugees around the world. I think that we as humans tend to be governed by our imaginations. We tend to go into situations already contemplating how that situation is going to go, and it affects that situation, both positively and negatively. So for me, in sports, an easy reference point, when I visualize myself making the shot rather than missing it in basketball, I'm kind of more likely to make it. Or when you draw up a play and you kind of see how it looks on a piece of paper, it enables you in your imagination to better execute that play. In the negative sense, it occurs too. When I come off of Christmas weekend or New Year's weekend and go into work, I'm already thinking, this day is going to be terrible. That probably means the day is going to be terrible. Or when I go into a difficult conversation and I'm already deciding in my imagination beforehand that this is going to be a fight, it's probably going to be a fight. Our imagination governs oftentimes how we live. And Christ's living hope provides us a vision of what is possible. It enlightens our imagination for we see a living hope that empowers change. We can imagine freedom from a life of death, of destruction, and of chaos for others because that's what Christ has given us through his resurrection. I can imagine giving grace to the sinner because that is exactly what I've received as a sinner. The living hope of the Christian awakens our imaginations to all of the healing and recreation and beauty that's possible in the world. So as we as a church, the spring, midtown, And we as Christians move from 2018 to 2019. My invocation is this. Let us open our mind's eye. Let us enter into this next year with anticipatory imagination, seeking the ways in which eternity, the eternal hope of Christ, is made present in our midst. Rather than letting ourselves be conformed to the hope of this world, let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds to the living hope of Jesus. Let this happen when we go to work and when we go to church. When we cry and when we laugh. When we speak and when we interact. When we gather and when we feel alone. Our mission every week is to connect the disconnected. Let us do that in ways that heal, that unify, that strengthen, and that bring joy. That's what a living hope brings. So use your imagination.